Using the Law Lawfully, a study guide. And that's coming up next right here on The Parker J. Cole Show. Hi, and welcome to The Parker J. Cole Show. I am your host, the Queen Parker J. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host and contributor today, Bill Fortberry. You may remember when I talked to Bill last that we talked about Benjamin Franklin. We talked about resources for writers. And now he is back again, taking a really tedious topic and making it easy for us to understand. That's right, dear listener. He is going through the law based in the Old Testament of the Bible in this wonderful study guide called Using the Law Lawfully. And it's not just an outline of the Old Testament laws. It's also showing us which laws are still applicable today. And we'll get to it in just a few moments. As always, we want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years. And as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash write stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net, click on the pink follow button, and you'll never have to miss a show. Subscribe to our new YouTube channel at PJC Media, where we are updating content every single day. I'm so excited for that YouTube channel, and we're going to have exclusive content as well. So stay tuned for that. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest co-host today. Bill, how you doing? Doing great, Parker. It's good to be here. And it's good to have you back, good sir. You know, I always enjoy having you. And when I can tap into your brain and get more knowledge, I'm going to do that. And you took the Leviticus laws and Deuteronomy and numbers, and you made it an easy study guide. And as I was going through this book, I said, you know, I'm not really fond of the format here. And dear listener, this is literally a massive outline. And at first I was like, oh, it's an outline. Do I really want to read it <laughs> like an outline? But then I started to see the wisdom in how you formatted this book. It's very succinct. And you can get to the law that you need some more questions on by simply going through the list. And you give us a title, you give us the Old Testament, and then the New Testament application. So good job on irritating me with the format, but getting to the point across. So thank you. For being well, thank you. So let's go into the genesis of this real quickly. Where did the idea for the study guide come from? Uh, well, I taught a men's class, uh, Sunday school class, for several years, and there is very little material available for teaching a men's class. Uh, there's there's lots of stuff for ladies' classes, for youth classes and children's. For a class strictly for men, there's not a whole lot available. And so I, I racked my brain and talked to the men in the class, and this is one of the topics that we settled on. And uh, it took us about probably a year and a half to go through the whole thing. And uh, this is my uh, outlines that I developed in order to teach the class. And it was a lot of fun. I also remember when you were doing your podcast, you were taking these notes as well and putting it to your podcast. So that's why I really was glad to get this book. I think it's a good tool for study groups and for neighborhood groups that you may have at your church. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, that's absolutely. And I can't believe you remember me having a podcast. <laughs> that was an attempt that never, never really went very well. But yeah, I still have the recordings of 
uh, some of these lessons, and I'm thinking of putting those on my YouTube channel just as a supplement for the book. Might as well, because some people who won't read the book can listen to you to really dig into the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A lot of these are laws and regulations that seem rather foreign to us in the modern world, but Bill does a wonderful job of showing how they are foreign to us, but still relatable. And so I can't wait to dig into it. So we're going to touch on several of the laws here. Now, we're we're not going to touch on all of them because there's over 100 (laughs) in the book and we just don't have that type of time. But at the end of the day, you'll understand how this book works and how you can use it for your own personal Bible study and for group Bible study, which I think will actually be better because I can envision a lot of us getting together, looking over these scriptures and going, okay, what does Bill say about this? And then going on with our lives. (laughs) I like the idea of having this as a great study guide. So to our dear listener out there, when you pick up your copy of Using the Law Lawfully, a study guide, consider having it as a group study with your small group, with your women's group, your men's group, your children's group even, maybe not young kids, maybe like teens who are just really starting to explore the Bible and explore themselves within the context of of Scripture and of biblical history. So I think it's a really good tool for families to use as well. So let's go ahead and dig into this bill. So the first law we're going to discuss and I have on my notes is law number two. And law number two simply says, believe in God. What does the Old Testament commandment say? All right, so the Jews were commanded to believe in the existence of God, which makes sense. I mean, if God is going to be delivering them and leading them into the promised land, they they need to believe he actually exists. But God didn't just leave that up to them to decide whether or not they want to believe that God exists. It was actually commanded as part of the scripture. Um, and you see that several places in the Old Testament. Um, Exodus 20, verse number two uh, is a good one where it, it just starts right out and says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So that statement, I am the Lord thy God, is has always been viewed by the Jews as a command to believe in God. And it's just all throughout Scripture. You can see it repeated. I've listed, uh, what, uh, six examples in the the outline of verses that state that they need to believe in God. So it was a a prohibition of atheism. So the the Jews were commanded not to be atheists. They had to believe in God. And denying the existence of God was not an option for them because the absence of God would negate the entirety of the law. Uh, And so that was how it applied in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, the same command applies to us as Gentiles as well. We're given commands all throughout the New Testament that we're supposed to believe in God. One that I did not list, I should have listed in there, is one that my son learned recently in the book of Hebrews, when it's going through in chapter 11, going through the hall of faith, and it gets down to Enoch, and it talks about uh, Enoch having faith, and it says that the evidence of Enoch's faith is that he pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And so we have that stated in the New Testament also. And if we did not believe in God as Christians, of course, that would negate the entire gospel. And so it's a requirement for us as Christians as well. I also think it's a prohibition against just plain spiritualism, where you believe in a divine entity, a divine spirit, because it's letting us know that God is personable, that he wants us to believe in him because he exists. He's alive. He is here. He's eternal. It's no different than if you got married and someone said, well, I'll marry some dude. 
<laughs> like, well, who's the dude you marry? You will hope that you have more relationship with the person that you get married to. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. You do see that in the Old Testament because it, when we see the phrase, I am the Lord thy God, the word Lord, and a lot of Bibles, this can be in all caps, showing that that's Jehovah. So mm-hmm. it's I am Jehovah, and then thy God, it's Elohim. Uh, so it's I am Jehovah Elohim. So it's, it's God giving his name and saying, I am the one who is your God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And we're going to move to the next law. Act as if you have God's word always in view. Go ahead and expand on that for us. I really like this one. Um, You may have seen Jews, real devout Jews, have what they call phylacteries or uh, teflon. Uh, It's the the little boxes of scripture that they have up on their forehead or they'll have it on, on their hands or something like that. And they're following this Old Testament command. In Deuteronomy 6, 8 and a couple other places, it says, And thou shalt bind them, that's the law of God, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Uh, and so a lot of the Jews took that literally, and they said, that, oh, this is a command to have pieces of the law actually in front of our eyes all the time and on our hands all the time. But it's, it's not actually saying you have to have these little things on your body that symbolize the law. Uh, it says, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon the hand. So it's symbolism. And then it's, they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And in another place where it's talking about it, it compares it with having the Lord's law in thy mouth. Uh, and so you don't see any of the Jews walking around with pieces of scripture in their mouth. No, um, no. They didn't take that part literally. Right. Um, and so they shouldn't have taken the rest of it literally either. It just means to act as if you had God's law right there on your hand in front of you. Every time you reached your hand out to do something, there's the law of God telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Every time you look somewhere, you got, oh, there's the law of God telling me where I should go and what I should do. They were to always act that way. That was the the command. And uh, we have that same command uh, for us in the New Testament, um, that we are to act as if uh, we have God's word with us. Uh, familiar verse, Colossians 3:16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The very first part of that, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So that's have God's word constantly in your awareness, your your conscience, and you're to be guided by that into wisdom. You know, you have again, let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. So let God's word abide in you. It's First John 2, 24. Um, several different verses in the New Testament tell us we're supposed to live our lives according to the Bible. And it's just common sense for us. But one of the applications I see of this is that so many parents will complain and they say, you know, raising kids is so hard because kids just don't come with an instruction manual. You just have to do the best you can and, and hope for the best. But in reality, God has given us an instruction manual for raising our children just like he's given us an instruction manual for so many other things in our lives. Uh, and that instruction manual is in, in the Bible. You have Ephesians 6, 4. says, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the nurture and the admonition of the Lord are found in the Bible. And you can go through the book of Proverbs. is is rich with advice uh, for raising kids. So the Bible gives us that, that instruction manual. And as we're raising our kids, we're supposed to follow that instruction manual and do exactly as God has told us to do in raising the kids. And that applies in many areas in life. And so that's an Old Testament command that uh, still applies to us as modern day Gentile believers. It just doesn't quite apply to us the way that the Jews took it in the Old Testament because they misunderstood it. 
Now I want to go to write God's word on the post of your house and on your gate. All right. And this one's similar to the previous one where they had the, the Teflon and phylacteries and all that. The Jews took this command, which is in Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 9, and thou shalt write them, again, talking about the law of God, thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. And that's repeated in another part in Deuteronomy. Um, and they took that again as a literal command. The purpose of the command was to aid parents in teaching their children the word of God. And you can see that in the context of the whole reason God was saying this was so that they can pass that law down to their children. And I think this one actually was a literal command for the Jews to follow. That, that is to be written on the post of their house and, and on their gates. And devout Jews will often have... For an example, they'll have a mezuzah scroll, and it's a, a little box that has a scroll with the Ten Commandments on it uh, inside the box, and it's on the post of their door. That's a, a very common thing among devout Jews even today. And there's no New Testament equivalent to this command. There's no indication that this applies to Gentile believers. There is a command for us to teach our children the Word of God, and we just looked at that in Ephesians 6, 4, and, and several others. Most Christians follow this anyway. They have Bible verses posted throughout the house, and it's a good way to help uh, with teaching your children. I know I have a large picture that says, be still and know that I am God, and uh, use that to teach my son to <laughs> be still a little bit, not be quite so rambunctious. Well, um, he can't help it, right? That's <laughs> 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 what parents and, uh, are for, to guide their children. That's what they're for. Yep. Exactly. And so many Christians have that and, and follow that anyway, even without it being commanded to the Christians. And then the next one we're going to go to is health regulations. Now, we're not going to go deep dive into this, just really a quick overview of this one, only because there were so many health regulations that the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament about it. But what were the health regulations for and how do they apply to the New Testament and also to the modern world? Right. Yeah. The, the health regulations in the Old Testament were extremely advanced uh, for that time period. No one else had regulations like this. No other nation came even close uh, to these kind of regulations. And uh, God goes into great detail on how to diagnose different diseases. And this is mainly it's uh, infectious diseases, highly infectious diseases like leprosy and, and things like that. Um, and he goes into great detail on how to diagnose the diseases different forms of the disease and how the different forms present. Uh, and then he goes into detail about you know, whether or not people should be in, put in quarantine if they have the disease or if they have this particular form of it. He talks about the recovery and how to know if someone has recovered from the disease. And he even talks about how to clean both the, the people that have recovered and get them clean so they can be, come back into society without infecting other people. Uh, and then also how to clean their clothes, how to clean the structures, the buildings they've been in, anything that might have been infected. And the Bible goes into a lot of detail about how to keep all that clean and disinfected. Another thing, the Bible goes into information about dead bodies and how if you handled a dead body, you were to be separated from everyone for seven days. Even with secondhand contamination, it required you to wash and be separated from everyone until the evening just in case uh, you picked something up in that because you touched something that a dead body had also touched previously. Uh, and so the Bible is fascinating in its detail in preventing the spread of infectious diseases. It even goes into things like sexually transmitted diseases and stuff that really we didn't get to until within the past hundred years in the Western society. And there's no application to this to, to Gentile believers. 
God didn't say in the New Testament, now all you Gentiles need to follow all these health regulations of the Old Testament. But most of this is followed by modern societies anyway. <laughs> they already, it's a legitimate role of government and seen that way in, in modern societies and, and everyone already follows the procedures that were laid out in the Bible. Next one is one that often causes contention among the brothers and sisters of Christ, and that's about tithing. So let's go into tithing. Yeah, tithing is an, an interesting one to study. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about it. In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to give one-tenth of all their produce to the Lord, as, as one-tenth of their increase from the previous year. That was to be given to the Lord. It's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy both. Uh, the tithe was to be brought to the temple, and it paid for things like their religious festivals. Those were paid for by the tithes. Uh, the tithe was also given to the Levites. Now, remember, the Levites is an entire tribe. So it's this is one thirteenth of the whole nation of Israel. And they had the tithes that were given to them that were for them to distribute among themselves to take care of their needs, to distribute to the destitute uh, in the land to take care of their needs, to take care of the poor. Uh, the tithe was uh, is basically a tax that everyone was required to pay, but there was no uh, punishment listed in the law for if you didn't pay it, but it is, you know, if you didn't pay it, God wasn't going to bless you. And with God directly involved in, in their lives on a regular basis there, that it was pretty obvious. <laughs> the ones that didn't pay the tithes, uh, you can see in scripture that they brought punishment to themselves, to the nation and stuff like that. Um, and then in Malachi, it says that failing to give God tithes is the same thing as stealing from God. Uh, and so all that's pretty much understood. A lot of uh, stuff written about that, a lot of Sunday school material and, and preaching about the tithe. And it's all from the Old Testament. When you look at the New Testament, there is no command for Gentiles to tithe, for Gentile believers. We know, however, that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, who is the high priest before the Mosaic law was given. So here you have tithing outside of the law. Uh, not just tithing in the law for the Jews, but outside of the law with Abraham. Uh, we also know that Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so you can conclude that there's kind of a, a loose construction there saying that Christians should still give a tenth of their income. But And so tithing predates the law of Moses, is never limited to, to those who are under the law, but it's not specifically said in the New Testament or anywhere that Gentiles are required to give a tenth of their, their income. What we are required to do, however, is to give offerings and to give cheerfully and to give liberally. Uh, and there's very few Christians that, that meet that requirement. I know for myself, it was never a problem to give a 10% of what I made to the Lord. If you got a dollar, you give 10 cents. It was never a problem. But nowadays, people try to make tithing a requirement in the same way as it did back in the Old Testament time period. And then I've seen this be abused by wealth, health, and prosperity teachers who say, if you give $500 to me, then I'm going to give you this prayer cloth. And we've seen the charlatan that can happen from a misunderstanding of scripture. So I thought it was mm -hmm. really good for you to go into this as well. That's why I wanted to bring it up. And it's highly controversial. There are some people who feel they shouldn't have to give money to the Lord. I can remember a heated argument happening where someone said, you should give offerings to the Lord. And one lady got mad and said, well, that will be $300 if I gave that to God. And I was thinking to myself, well, how much would you pay to breathe? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's me, mm -hmm. but silly old me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it is a very heated topic depending on who you're talking to. There are some people who believe if you tithe, then 
you're going to have a good life no matter what happens, no matter what goes on in the world. And he never said that. Tithing is simply right. being obedient to the Lord. Offering is being obedient. You give to the Lord because of what he's given to you, you know. And so that's my personal opinion about that, Bill. So we're going to go to the next one here. There's a few more we're going to go through, gang, because there's so many, like I said, it's over 100 in here. And Bill has so gracefully gone through all of these to give you just an example and an understanding of some of these laws. We're going to go to loving the stranger. Now, why was this one of your favorite ones that you wanted to share with our listeners today? Well, this is one that is not really followed too much today in America. Unfortunately, Americans have gotten this philosophy that we should be America first and everything should just be focused on taking care of us and not be welcoming to immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, which, by the way, the concept of illegal immigration in the way that we see it now, where it's illegal to enter a country, that didn't even exist until the 20th century. Prior to the 20th century in, in both America and in throughout the world, entering a country was never a problem. No one ever forbade entrance of just a, an alien or an immigrant coming into a country. What illegal immigration was before that was what our founding fathers objected to in the Declaration of Independence when the king would forbid people from leaving England or leaving France or leaving places like that in order to come to America. So but anyway, that, that's another point. I, I get into that in my next book that is coming out later this year. So he'll be stirring uh, the of hornet. <laughs> Bill is not shy to stir the hornet for some of us. He's not shy. I have seen him interact on Facebook and have made many people mad, <laughs> but he's going to do it anyway. So go ahead, Bill. Finish your thoughts. All right. So, so in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to love all the foreigners that were among them. They were forbidden from oppressing or making life hard for any foreigners that lived among them. The foreigners in the Old Testament, they were called strangers. And uh, the word stranger, if you look at it in the places that it's used and compare it to the opposite of that's used in the same thing as it will say, sometimes you should have one law, both for the stranger and for one who is born in the land. And so the, the opposite of stranger is the person that's born in Israel. So anyone born outside of Israel who emigrated to Israel was considered a stranger. And they were told they, they had to have the same laws for both foreigners and citizens. They could not oppress foreigners. Foreigners were not to be treated more harshly or more leniently than citizens. They be treated exactly the same with no legal difference between them. They were never to prevent them from coming in. Whenever a foreigner wanted to come in, he was allowed to come in, allowed to purchase land and live among the Israelites. Now, there were some things they could not do that are mentioned in other laws in the book. Like, for example, a foreigner, until he converted to the Jewish religion, Judaism, he could not take part in like Passover. Uh, he didn't have some of the citizenship benefits until he was circumcised and became a full-fledged Jew, which they could do. They could become a full-fledged Jew and become a proselyte into Judaism. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are commanded to follow the exact same rules. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse number two, direct command to Christians, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, that's foreigners, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so it's a direct command specifically to Christians that we are to now by entertain, that doesn't mean, you know, put on a show for them. <laughs> That's uh, the idea of hosting them in your house and providing for their needs, uh, seeing that they have a meal and that they have clothing and then, you know, they can help them on their way to wherever they're going. And so Christians are commanded to do that. The widows in First Timothy chapter 5, 
The good widows are the ones that were said to be well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers. And so that's taking care of foreigners. And Paul would praise uh, different people that did that in some of his letters. And so the Christians have the exact same command that we are to be loving toward foreigners rather than trying to push them out, say, we don't want you here. You're stealing our food, stealing our jobs. Go away. We, We shouldn't have that type of an attitude toward foreigners. We should be welcoming them in because when they come to us, it's a whole lot easier for us to present the gospel than if we go into their culture because they're coming in and they're wanting to learn our culture. And our culture is supposed to be, as Christians, based on the word of God and based on the gospel. And we can use that as an opportunity to witness to them. And many times they'll go back to their home country as missionaries and they can reach people far better than we can as as an outsider. The next one we're going to touch on is the law of jealousies. And this one, I actually, I won't lie, I kind of laughed a little bit (laughs) because I also had a misconception of what this particular law meant. So I want you to go into it. Yeah, this one's a fun one. I think God wrote this one completely as satire and sarcasm (laughs) toward toward these, these men that this law has to do with. A lot of atheists are very familiar with this law. This is this is one of the atheists' favorite laws in the in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's found in Numbers chapter five, verses twelve through thirty-one. And the if a husband suspected his wife of adultery, but he didn't have any proof, then he was to take her to the priest and accuse her before the priest. And the priest was to take a mixture of some of the dirt from the temple floor, mix it in some water and give it to the woman to drink. And if her belly started rotting and her thigh started rotting, then the husband would know that she was guilty of adultery. And, you know, she was to be condemned, a written condemnation written uh, about her as a result of that. And so a lot of the, the biblical skeptics look at this law and they'll they'll mock it and say, you know, of course, this is ridiculous to make this woman drink this potion. Um, there is something mentioned in this law about later if she's okay, and if she didn't, her thigh didn't rot and her belly doesn't rot out uh, right there after drinking that potion, that then she's innocent and she can conceive children. And so I've seen a lot of skeptics look, point to this and say, see, that's the Bible saying, give this woman a potion that will cause her to have an abortion. But there's there's nothing in there about that at all. The only conception mentioned is for future conceptions, not anything right at the time. But it, it's pretty interesting in this passage that it's not called the law of adultery. It's called the law of jealousies. So this is a law for a jealous husband who has no cause to be jealous. Because if he had cause, if he had proof, you know, she could be put to death for adultery as soon as he proves it. So this is just for the one that has no evidence for anything going wrong with his wife and he's just unreasonably jealous, then he's supposed to come and and have this mixture. And I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us if anyone ever did this, but you can imagine if a man ever did this and had his wife go there and she drank this mixture of dirt and water, nothing's going to happen to her. Her her belly's not going to rot. Her thigh's not going to rot. Now, I did see a special, I think on Ripley's Believe It or Not, Bill, where this woman in Islamic law, her husband accused her of adultery, and she had to lick three times the uh, heated bowl or something. And if her tongue blistered, then she cheated on him. But her tongue did not blister. She didn't cheat on him. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> so I'm like, right. her tongue's going to blister up regardless if she did or right. not. But, yeah. Believe it or not, it didn't. So go figure. 
And see, that's that's a big difference between the other religions and Judaism in regards to the women. God wrote this where if the natural law follows, you know, if everything just follows natural processes, then the woman's going to be perfectly fine. And the husband is, is going to suffer the rebuke and the condemnation from the priest. In order for this to cause the woman to be guilty, it would take a miracle of God. Whereas other religions like Islam, it takes a miracle of God for the woman to be innocent. And they would just assume she's guilty automatically, you know, because she licks the, the hot bowl and, and her tongue blisters up. Even if she was innocent, they would assume that just because she blistered. But the Bible is, is very, very, very protective of women. And that's mentioned in several of these other laws that are in the book, that, that God is just extremely protective of women, and not just of women, but of their reputations. A man that brought a false accusation against a woman, like, for example, with the, the law of virginity, if he accused her of not being a virgin and could not prove that, uh, then he had to pay a, a huge fine. It was double the dowry that he had already paid to the, the father. So now he's paying a triple dowry as a fine uh, for bringing this accusation against his new wife. And so the Bible is, is very, very protective of women. And there are many times where you say that in the book here, and I think it's important to expand on that within the context of the study guide, because many have said, oh, the Bible hates women. And that was far from what the actual scripture says. But people don't read their Bibles now and are biblically illiterate. Mm -hmm. so how would they know? I remember when you were on the show probably a year or two ago, we were talking about Benjamin Franklin. And during that time period, Americans knew their Bible very right. well. And it was the English who didn't know their Bibles as well. And so he was, maybe him or someone else was just saying, we need to, no, it wasn't Ben Franklin. We were taught one of the fathers during that time, one of the fathers of the faith during that time. And he was talking about how we need to evangelize people over in England because we know the Bible <laughs> and uh, they did something like that, Bill. I'm probably messing right. up to our dear listener out there. It's in the archives. Go to pjcmedia.net <laughs> and you'll find it because obviously my memory's fickle <laughs> right now. It was Benjamin Franklin. You're, you're okay. right on that. Okay. It was that episode. It was the episode about Benjamin Franklin, yep. guys. pjcmedia.net. You'll find it there and we'll be putting that on the YouTube channel as well. Now, we're going to go to the next very hot, controversial one. Again, Bill does not shy away from these things. <laughs> well, I'm a glutton capital. for punishment. You know what it is? You want, I think over time I've gotten to know you via your social media and just our private talks. You want people to really take their faith seriously. You don't want people yes. to take it lightly. You don't want people just to believe. You don't want to just accept just to accept. God is worthy of scrutiny. It's not like these things don't matter. They do. And we have to be just as diligent to understand our faith and where it stands. And that's what I get from you. And sometimes when people start jumping on you on your Facebook, and I've seen those people jump on Bill. Dear listener, <laughs> some of these people, they go off on him. But he responds in a firm, clear, but loving way. He doesn't always attack for attack. I don't think you've ever done that. If you have, it was because you got provoked, though. Sometimes they hit that button. <laughs> One day you're like, okay, I'm about to, about to let you know. So let the glasses fool you. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know that old joke, would you hit a guy with glasses? <laughs> Do you want to get hit by a guy with glasses? <laughs> that should probably be the rejoinder to that. So this next one is about capital punishment. Let's talk about it. Right. People are familiar with the fact that murder is supposed to be punished by death in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 9, 6, of course, one of the, the first laws given in the Bible, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. 
Uh, and then that is repeated. It's actually repeated in all five books of the Pentateuch as one of the few commands. There, there are extremely few that are repeated in all five books. Uh, and this is one of them. And it's repeated not just in reference to the previous command, but it is emphatically stated in all five books. And in fact, in, in Numbers, it actually says capital punishment is part of natural law, not just the law of God, because it refers to failing to put the murderer to death. It says that it would cause pollution of the land and uh, the innocent blood being spilled and not being avenged would call, cause pollution of the land. And anytime you see that in the Bible, pollution of the land, it's a reference to natural law. The, the land itself, the nature itself is polluted uh, by failing to follow this law. Uh, and so it was very strict for the, the rules for putting someone to death in the Bible. There had to be a minimum of two witnesses. There had to be a trial. The judges had to sit down and, and with a jury present, they had to listen to these two witnesses. They had to make, the Bible says they had to make diligent inquiry to find out if it was true. And then if it was true that the person had killed someone in an act of murder, now there were Provisions for manslaughter, accidental death or in a, a fit of rage or something like that where it wasn't intentional. Uh, there were provisions for that. And that's mentioned other places in the book. Uh, but if it was actual murder, then they were to be put to death. It even says you're to take no satisfaction uh, for the life of the murderer, meaning satisfaction as you can't just have him pay a fine. You can't take a lesser penalty. Death is the only option uh, for murder in the Old Testament. Uh, and then as far as the New Testament commandment or New Testament application of this, the fact that capital punishment is mentioned in Genesis 9, 6 shows that this was a command given to Noah for all of mankind. It was not a command given to Moses for the Jews. Uh, this is a command that was given for all mankind at all times, at all places. Murder is always to be put to death, which follows with it being part of the natural law. It's the way God set up the the cosmos and everything, that if you don't follow this, you're breaking a natural law. And we can see this illustrated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13, for example, where, where it talks about uh, submitting to the power, powers that be, because it says, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Uh, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And it mentions the sword, and we think of that in just kind of figurative terms sometimes and just think, okay, it's, it's just talking about punishment. Well, the sword is only used for one kind of punishment, and that's for capital punishment. It's, it's a weapon for killing. It's, it's kind of like saying he bears not the gun in vain. You know, the, the gun is not used as any other tool other than a tool for killing. So it alludes to the fact that even in the New Testament, it is still the case or that murder is always to be punished with capital punishment. A lot of people don't like that, but, you know, that's it's just what the Bible says. <laughs> well, it makes sense because you have terminated someone's life out of God's judgment of that. God is the one who brought us life. And he takes us out of life. And when you do that, you're putting yourself in the place of God. But then we also know there mm -hmm. are certain circumstances. Someone is walking and they slip on a flick of ice or you forgot to... Like there was one one in here about the roof uh, railings on top right. of the roof even. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that now, like that's a good idea now, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. someone can tell your roof and it just crashed to the floor. We understand accidental death. That's different from intentional murder. But that's why the laws are so rigorous, even now about proving if someone killed someone. They're very rigorous. And this is based from a Judeo-Christian ethic. If someone murdered your loved one, you want to make sure they are 
punished for that. Those are just some of the laws that we've talked about in this book, Using the Law Lawfully. Make sure you can pick up your copy wherever books are sold. Now, Bill, in the last moment we have left, what are some things you want our listeners to take from the study guide that could actually help enrich their own Bible reading? Well, the Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And a lot of American Christians think that that should read, my people are destroyed for a lack of love or a lack of uh, emotional enthusiasm or for a lack of worship. But that's not what God said. He said, my people are destroyed when they lack knowledge. And so we should constantly be studying the Bible. You look at uh, Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. That word meditate, it's not the, you know, sit with your legs crossed and your fingers in a circle and hum, or it's not repeating a mantra, which is what most people call meditating nowadays. Meditate means to study. And uh, I've got a, a whole message on that that's on my YouTube channel that you can listen, watch and listen to and, and see what I talk about with studying the Bible. But it's very important. If Christians don't study the Bible, then we face destruction. And so the law may be hard, it may be difficult, but my goal is for people to enjoy the study of the law a little bit more and learn from it so we can avoid some of the destruction that's waiting for us if we don't. And of course, Bill is always open to discussion. So you can email him if you want to email him at his information, which will be in the show notes below. And you can also follow him on his YouTube channel. Bill, thank you so much for being with the show today. Really enjoyed having you as always. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Always is. We were talking today to Bill Fortenberry. He is the author of Using the Law Lawfully. It's a study guide to help you understand all those laws that are in the Old Testament and whether or not they have New Testament or modern application. You'll be surprised at which laws do and which laws don't. You'll be surprised in what context these laws were written in their historical framework. And you may be surprised that some of these laws are still valid today, even though they may seem innocuous or really small. So go ahead and pick up your copy of Using the Law Lawfully today. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of the Parker J. Cole Show. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious blessed day. And God bless. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.